invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Our text this morning is Galatians 4, 21 through 31. And it will take us into some deep waters, so I'll take it easy on you to start. There is a book written in 1960 by P.D. Eastman called, Are You My Mother? And if you're not familiar with it, it is a searching book that plums into the inner complexities of identifying the essential relationship between mother and child. It's actually just a kid's book if you haven't read it. It's like Dr. Seuss. Um, It's a book about a baby bird that hatches while its mother is away. And it goes on a search to find its mother. And it comes across a dog and asks, are you my mother? And clearly the dog is not his mother. Then a hen, a cat, a cow, and even a digging machine. And this little bird has not yet found his mother. Eventually, of course, he finds his mother who happens to be a bird. No surprise there. If I were to take this simple story and try to weave it somehow into our text, and the irony was just found on me uh, that next week is Mother's Day, so this is not a Mother's Day message. Um, But if you went looking for your spiritual mother, what would be the attributes that identify her? What kind of things would you have in common with her? What things would you look for in your quest of her if you're looking for your spiritual mother? Perhaps that question is a bit odd. You don't even know what a spiritual mother is, so you don't even know what to look for. You might ask, what is a spiritual mother? Why do I care? I didn't even know that I had one. And it is a bit odd, But here's why it matters. It matters because you need to know where you fit into the plan of God. You need to know who you are like, where you come from, who you are not like, and where you do not come from, spiritually speaking. You could ask the question, are you like the right people? Or are you like the wrong people? Put it another way, what are your spiritual origins? It's kind of like getting a spiritual DNA test and finding where have you come from. These questions matter because they help us sort out who we really are. Sometimes who we are doesn't correspond to who we think we are, and so we do a little genealogy work to find out where we come from, who we're like, who we're not like, and it helps to put us into perspective where we fit into the plan of God. The issue in the book of Galatians is how are we right with God? How do we have a right relationship with him? There are many who think that they are right with God because of the things that they do. 
This is probably the bulk of humanity that believes in God. They think that they are right with God because they are a right person or a righteous person, and they do good things. They think that they have kept their standards well enough or they've kept God's standards well enough in order to be acceptable to Him. But when you look at the people that God accepts, they're not people who rely on their works for salvation, but rather rely on God's promises. They're people who rely on God's power and see the power of God in their life. They're people who are blessed by God through His power, not by our power. There are people who rely on His Spirit, not on our own strength. They work on, they rely on His promises and not on our own word. So as you consider if you are like the right or wrong people, or you consider what your spiritual origins are, it is important that you consider what kind of people there are in the Bible who you connect to. Who are you like and who are you not like? In the book of Galatians, Paul has already pointed us to one spiritual ancestor, and that is Abraham. In chapter 3, verse 29, he identifies those who belong to Christ, who belong to Christ are Abraham's offspring, and therefore heirs according to promise. Paul has work to show that it's not those who are physically descended from Abraham who inherit Abraham's blessings, but those who are connected to Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ who inherit the blessings and promises of God. Abraham is a a key and central figure to the Old Testament and really unlocks for us much understanding for what God is doing in the world. And it's because God made a promise to Abraham that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Those who bless Abraham will be blessed, and those who curse Abraham will be cursed. And so in one sense, everybody in the world is some way tied to Abraham, either through blessing or through cursing. And so we ought to care how we are connected to Abraham. And as Paul develops his argument in the book of Galatians, it's establishing who are the people who get to inherit the blessings of God. Is it those who have a physical ancestry tying back to Abraham? Is it those who have a legalistic ancestry tying back to circumcision? Or is it those who have a spiritual ancestry who have faith in Jesus Christ and rely on God's promises? And of course, the answer is it's those who rely on God's promises and faithfulness who receive and inherit the promises given to Abraham. But now, in Galatians 4, it's not asking who is your spiritual father. It's helping you to round out your whole family by asking who is your spiritual mother. You may say that you know that you're connected to Abraham somehow, but do you know if you're connected to the right mother? Look at chapter 4, verse 26, just to help you see that this text is regarding your spiritual ancestry through your mother. 426 says, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Verse 28, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. And then verse 31, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Did you know that? You have a spiritual mother. 
You have a spiritual father and a spiritual mother. If you didn't know that, if you couldn't articulate who your spiritual mother is, why it matters, and how you know, then let's take a little tour through the Bible to help us grasp this. But first, let's read this text in totality. Galatians 4, verse 21 through 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those, who, those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who, has, who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit... So also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Let's pray. Father, your word is rich. And at times it is also dense to us. And we pray that you would open it up so that we might understand it. That your spirit would show us the meaning of this passage. Not just that we would understand it, but that we would also embrace that which we understand to be true. We would receive by faith your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This passage is fascinating, and it's fascinating on multiple levels. And you could come at this text and really look at it from a variety of areas, how it fits into the scope and sequence of God's plan, how it fits into the argument of Galatians, uh, what it teaches us about hermeneutics and how Paul views the Old Testament, these types of things. But really the way we want to take it is just head on and follow the flow of thought that Paul comes at it with by unpacking the Old Testament background of what he is arguing here. And the intention of this text is to get us to know, to get everybody who trusts in Jesus Christ to know that you are children of promise, that you are children of the Spirit, and that you are children of freedom. That's really the goal even though it has its complexities about it, its ultimate purpose is fairly simple. It wants Christians who have trusted in Jesus Christ to know where you belong spiritually and that you are children who are free, who have come about through a promise and the work of the Spirit. To unpack this, we're going to take a tour through the Bible. So if you have your Bible, turn back to Genesis chapter 15. We're going to be doing a lot of scripture reading. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you in the pew. And at the front of that is a table of contents. It will tell you where the books of the Bible are. 
Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and we'll be in chapter 15 to start. The best way to understand this text, I think, is to just read a lot of Scripture, because Scripture helps us understand itself. What we are going to see could be summarized this way, that God makes a promise that only God can fulfill. In Genesis 15, verse 1, we've already met Abraham, and the Lord is speaking to Abraham in verse 1. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven, look toward heaven, and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. That is the quintessential text where God makes a promise to Abraham that is just extraordinarily difficult for any human to accomplish. In fact, it's so difficult, it's impossible. Abram is confused because he doesn't see any kind of hope or future for himself because he has no heir, and God himself declares that he will provide offspring for him. And the descendants of Abraham will be innumerable. One of the problems was that Abraham's wife, Sarah, was barren. That's why they had had no children. Not only was she barren, but they were also older. Abraham was getting up in years, and so was Sarah. And they might be getting to thinking that God made this promise to them that they would have offspring. But it's physically impossible for them to see this fulfilled because she's barren, Abraham's old, and so by natural means, this is not going to happen. God made a promise that was too big, it seemed. And so they need to kind of bring it down into the realm of human capacities. And so Sarah and Abraham concoct this plan that's identified for us in Genesis 16. It says, now Sarai, Abram's wife, verse 1, Genesis 16, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. This is their solution to the promise of God that they've come up with. Sarah had a slave named Hagar, and she gives that slave to Abraham, and Hagar conceives. 
So now there seems to be an heir for Abraham. And now, Hagar gives birth. The name of the child is Ishmael. And so now the people that you need to keep account of grows in a little bit of complexity because now it's not just Abraham and Sarah. It's Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, and Ishmael. So keep track of all these people. God, however, reiterates his promise to Abraham. Sarah and Abraham seem to have taken the promise down to their level in a way that they could accomplish it, but that was never God's intention. It was never God's intention that humanity could achieve the fulfillment of God's promise. And so in Genesis 17... Verse 4, we see God make a covenant and a promise to Abraham. Genesis 17, verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God has reiterated his promise. If you're in Abraham's shoes, you might think, great, I've got offspring now. I've got Ishmael. By my own work and my own effort, I was able to accomplish that. Well, in Genesis 17, verse 15, God goes on. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him, as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. It's like God just won't let this go. Sarah, Abraham, Hagar, and Ishmael kind of had it figured out. They had a way to achieve the promise of God. Abraham even suggests to God, here, we've got Ishmael, let's use him. But God is not satisfied with human means of fulfilling his promises. And so, God in no ambiguous way declares, no, Sarah is going to have a son. And when that happens, it is going to be absolutely clear 
that that son came into this world by the power of God and not by human ability. In Genesis 18, verse 9 through 15, the Lord appears to Abraham again. And God continues to insist that his promise will be fulfilled through Sarah. Genesis 18, verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have this pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Sarah can't believe it. Abraham can't seem to believe it. But this is going to be the way that God works in this family. He is going to bring about this son. And then finally, when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was about 90, in Genesis 21, verses 1 through 7, we see this happen. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears this will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. To answer Sarah's question, who would have said that to Abraham? God would. God did. He's the one who made the promise. All along, this is so clearly the insistent work of God that he was going to bring his promise about by his power, his way. And the promise would be fulfilled completely in accord with the word of the Lord, not through Hagar and not through Ishmael, but through Abraham's wife, Sarah. The story's not over. In some way, Ishmael taunted Isaac. In Genesis 21, verse 8, it says, And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be the heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
And so Ishmael and Hagar are kicked out of the family. And the entire inheritance of the blessings given to Abraham is going to go through Isaac, the son of Sarah. Isaac was a child who came into the world by the power of God, through the promise of God, and was born of the free woman and was named the heir of Abraham. Ishmael, on the other hand, was the concoction of human effort in an attempt to attain the blessing of God by human means, was born to the slave woman, and was therefore born into slavery, and did not receive the inheritance of Abraham. It's a summary of those chapters in that story. Now, if you fast forward to Exodus 19, Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes ended up in Egypt, and they ended up in slavery in Egypt. And as you know, God miraculously delivered them out of Egypt through the crossing of the Red Sea. And the physical descendants of Isaac were the people of Israel. But you have to wonder, are these people of promise? Or will they be people who take things into their own hands? And in Exodus 19, we find the people of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. It says, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. People are on the precipice of inheriting the land of Canaan, but before they do, God lays down a law for them that is conditional. If they keep the law that God is telling them to do, then they will be considered that great nation, that kingdom of priests. And in one sense, it will be dependent now on them keeping the law. And in one sense, they have entered into this covenant and they have also entered now into slavery because they will not be able to keep the law. Even though they think they will, in Exodus 24, verse 3, it says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. In verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And pretty much on day one, they're not. 
And because they're not, they are now enslaved under the law, which brings condemnation to lawbreakers. And so they are not now living as people of promise, but as people of the flesh and under condemnation. Not because of any fault of the law, but because of their own sinfulness. And so the physical descendants of Isaac are practically enslaved and under condemnation. Eventually, the people do arrive in the promised land, and the capital city of the Israelites becomes Jerusalem. And it's the place where the temple was established, where the people would go to celebrate the feasts. It's the city where the king of the Jews would live. And it's also the place in 1 Kings 11.36 where God declares where I have chosen to put my name. So we move from Sinai to Jerusalem, and as the people go there, they bring their adherence to the law with them. And now we fast forward to Isaiah 51. The people with their capital city of Jerusalem or Zion did not keep the law as they promised to do. They broke it. They broke it severely. And that earthly Jerusalem became a city that was known by its unrighteousness. I'm sorry, I told you Isaiah 51. We'll get there in a moment. But Isaiah 1, verse 21 describes the city of Jerusalem now, inhabited by people under the law. And it says in Isaiah 1, verse 21, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. That's the, what the city of Jerusalem became known for. And because the city of Jerusalem was to be a place of righteousness and justice, but it was a place of iniquity where the law was broken, it became a place where God was going to set his wrath and bring destruction. And so it says in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 1, what God is going to do. It says, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taken away from Jerusalem and from Judah, support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. Jerusalem is going to be abandoned. We know historically it was sieged by the Babylonians. It was destroyed. The temple burned. The people exiled. But that was not the last word. Man-made Jerusalem, full of sinners and self-righteous lawbreakers, would be destroyed, but God is not done. God will redeem Jerusalem. And look at Isaiah 51. As we now encounter some texts in Isaiah that speak 
of the Lord's redemption and the Lord's comfort. Isaiah 51 is the only text that I'm aware of outside of Genesis that speaks of Sarah. And it is spoken to a Jerusalem that is going to be sieged with destruction because of their waywardness. But there's still hope. Isaiah 51, verse 1 says, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. What a huge change from what Jerusalem had become, a place of waywardness and a place of destruction. And God says that he is going to bring about redemption and restoration. And you can think about this Jerusalem as the Jerusalem from above. Because just as with Isaac, no human being can bring this about. It is a promise that no one else can accomplish except for God. Look at the way it's described. It says it's going to be made like Eden, like the garden of the Lord. That's God's work. That's a city whose builder and founder is God. And no one else can accomplish this task. And so this city that has gone wayward because of the fleshly living is going to be redeemed by the promise of God. And so you have this earthly Jerusalem that is full of fleshly people. And you have this heavenly Jerusalem that God is going to be the builder of. And it tells us, look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. It tells you to look back to your ancestry. Think about where God began in this world, and he began with promise. He began with an old man and a barren woman and brought about progeny from them. God is going to do a good work. Look at chapter 52, verses 1 through 3. As Jerusalem is beautified, it says, Awake! Awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the, circum the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. The Lord is bringing redemption to Jerusalem. This is the heavenly Jerusalem. Isaiah 52, verse 9. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. And then we come to Isaiah 54. And this is the passage that Paul quotes in Galatians 4 that we read so long ago. There are two kinds of Jerusalem already established. There's the Jerusalem that is produced from mere human efforts. 
And then there's the Jerusalem that is produced by God and his promise. And so when we come to Isaiah 54, it's going to speak about a barren one. That's speaking about the city of Jerusalem, but with a reminder of Sarah. Isaiah 54 verse 1 says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. And then look at verses 11 through 13. Still speaking of this above Jerusalem, this heavenly Jerusalem. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come to you, come near you. This is the Jerusalem above. In this city that's beautified, that's redeemed, that's restored, that is full of righteous people, is a work that will come about by the promise of God, the redemption of God, and not by human effort. It's necessary to note that between these chapters in Isaiah that we have read is Isaiah 53. You might wonder, how does that fit into all of this? Well, the simple reality is that Israel goes from being this ugly city full of iniquity to being this redeemed city full of people that are righteous. And how does that happen? Well, it happens by Isaiah 53 the substitute for our sins. It says in Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the Lord Jesus Christ who bore the sins of his people that they might be redeemed, restored, reconciled, made new, And ultimately, that's the way that the promises of God are fulfilled, through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's quickly tie this together in Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Let me read it again. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? What we've just read. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. 
but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. I think at the end of the day, the main point that is being communicated here is what we've been seeing throughout Galatians. Are you trying, by your own efforts, to accomplish your salvation? Or do you realize that God is a God who makes promises and fulfills them by his own power and needs no help from you? Paul identifies at the time that he writes, the present Jerusalem is full of people who are thinking by their own righteousness they can attain salvation, and they're bringing the law to others and preaching that to people and telling them you must be law keepers in order to be saved. And Paul says if you go that route, you are like Hagar and Ishmael, and you are children of slavery, and you will not see the promises of God fulfilled in you. You need to realize God has made another promise. It is to redeem and restore through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the example of that is given to us in Abraham and Sarah. And so if you count Abraham as your spiritual father and Sarah as your spiritual mother, then what should you do? Cast out the slave woman and her son. That means get rid of All self-righteousness in you, in the church. Don't let anybody come in teaching that you need to keep works of the law in order to be saved. Because salvation is of the Lord and fulfillment of his promise by his power. Let's pray. Father, your word is so consistent and precise and so full of good news. We thank you for the promise that you have made to save sinners through Jesus Christ and that he is all of our righteousness, all of our salvation, all of our hope. Father, wherever self-righteousness abides in us, may you drive it far from us. Wherever fleshly living abides in us, drive it far from us, and may we belong to the heavenly Jerusalem rather than the earthly one. Father, thank you for mercy that you have extended to sinners like us. You've chosen to save by your power and your mighty hand. We praise your name in Jesus' name. Amen.